Hello, and welcome to PhD Paranormal. Where a pair of normal PhDs talk about the paranormal. Woo! And other spooky stuff. Yep. As it may go. How are you, Dr. Evan? I'm doing all right. How are you, Dr. Ed? I am well. How are our listeners? We're fine. Okay, great. They're oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> all right. We are. We hope you're doing well, though, dear listeners. Yes, and if you're not doing well, you should tell us why via our email address, as long as it's spookily related. Yeah, but, you know. We're not therapists. And maybe we shouldn't be saying these things in the midst of a pandemic. That's true. Well, I do hope that you're well. Yes. In the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. For sure. Because I wasn't super well last week. No. <laughs> so we have many things to talk about today, but I want to talk about our great pumpkin patch exploration. So if you follow our Facebook page, of course, you saw photos of the patch from which we harvested pumpkins. And gourds. And gourds. Because I have a few gourds. Yes. And um, it was a very successful pumpkin patching. Yes, it was in celebration of a friend. Yes. Who wanted to go pumpkin patching. We did a corn maze, which was not so much of a maze, but more just a weird loop. (laughs) Well, there was a hay maze. Yes. Which was just a path. Right. But it was cute. Like, the kids were getting up. You could get on top of the hay bales and play. And so they were having fun. Yes. Um, Yeah, and then there was a corn maze. Right. Which, having grown up in the great state of Indiana, which is known for its corn, and having been in many a corn maze where I got lost, <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was cute, but it was not for how many of the uh, five grown adults traipsing through. Yes, it was small, small, yes. and uh, kind of like the maze you'd find on a kids' menu, like highlights. Yes. In a highlights. So you hit one dead end, you're like, well, I guess there's only one other way to go. Well, and also the exit was literally about four feet from the entrance. Yes. And so if you just went in the entrance, turned left, you could come back up <laughs> the exit. <laughs> but it was cute. I mean, it's just, it was designed for children. Right. And we actually had a very good time, except it was wickedly, wickedly warm outside. Yeah, it was not a classic October. No, we were definitely not spieling, feeling the spooky weather vibes. No, I mean, it was really cute. They had lots of pumpkins. They had um, kittens. Oh my gosh, those poor kittens being tormented by those children. (laughs) Well, but they did have a space where they could run to in the barn. Yes. Where you could not get to them. Which many of them did. (laughs) They did. Because they were just like, (laughs) jeez. And bolted. And they were, most of them were black, but there were some grays. Yes. Very cute kittens. Right. But back to the weather. Yes. This is an important story. It did not feel as hot as it was. Yes. Although the temperatures were ranging in the low to mid 90s. Yeah, but it was overcast and windy. Yes. So it was deceptively not hot. Yes. It felt like, I suppose, a. I don't know. I can't describe it. It was just, it was hot. I felt hot and uncomfortable, but. I'm from the Rocky Mountains originally, so I'm hot and uncomfortable most days. And I'm just hot all the time because I tend to run warm. But I went into the barn. The barn had, um, like, the gourds, like the small gourds and right. some other stuff. And when I was in there, I started feeling really kind of woozy. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed a bottle of water, um, and then I felt real bad. <laughs> um, I, I sat on a rock. I dropped all my pumpkins. Um, luckily, our friends picked up my gourds and pumpkins for me. Um, and then I got into Dr. Ed's car, drank a bottle of water, thought I was doing okay. We were talking quietly about ghosts and paranormal things. And just chit-chatting about energies and yes. with, with, a, with a friend of the show. Right. Dr. Hannah, who shared yes. her interesting real estate contract thing with us for our Facebook. Yes. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was like, oh. Bad things are going to happen. And uh, perhaps it's clairvoyance, but Dr. Hannah's like, do you need a bag? Well, and I think because I remember f- moving around a lot in your car, like I was trying to get comfortable mm. and was just feeling like, ugh. Yes. And then all of a sudden, my entire bottle of water came back. It was like the exorcist. <laughs> Into a bag, luckily. I did not get it all over Dr. Ed's car. No. No, although she did offer to detail the car had she done such a thing. Yes. Like she did not. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, pretty um, unpleasant for her. It wasn't so much unpleasant for us because— I did not—I'll just be—I had an empty stomach, so it was basically just the water I had just drank. Yes. And then I drank another bottle of water in the car. 
Uh, and I felt okay after that. I I did litter, but yes, we had to make an emergency pullover <laughs> off of the interstate so she could eject her <laughs> bag of <laughs> water vomit. Water vomit. Uh, mostly because the bag had a, a tiny hole in it, and I did not want it all over myself and Doctor Edscar. Yes, so. I had already spilled part of my bottle of water <laughs> on myself. So it was it was an experience to remember. And just I, I went home. I laid on the couch in the AC, drank slowly some more water, and I felt fine within about a half hour. Yeah, felt totally normal. So it was just likely the heat. Yep. And the dehydration. And as um, friend of the show, Doctor Dom said, "I am a noted outdoors woman." Yes. So it was very surprising <laughs> that I felt so terrible. Yeah, it was. I mean. Listeners, it was pretty miserably hot. And that is what is the problem out here in the Midwest is sometimes it gets deceptively that way. Mm -hmm. Because, again, as Dr. Evans said, it was overcast and there was a breeze blowing, although it was like the breeze blowing out of a forced air heating system because (laughs) it was hot air blowing on us. But um, it was definitely an experience for sure. Yes. And I, I felt bad for Dr. Ed and Dr. Hannah, but they were very kind. Yes. I mean, what could we do? I mean, we could say, get out of the car, yeah. walk your sick self home, puke alongside the road. <laughs> um, I don't know. We are better people than that. But yeah, so now um, the office is decorated with pumpkins and gourds. Yes, one of the pumpkins uh, has a butt. Looks like Which is why Dr. Ed chose it. Yes, it looks like it has a butt. So it's very It also adorable. now looks like its butt is rotting. Yeah, yeah it's got some spots on it. So <laughs> it has a butt buttony. Age comes to us all. <laughs> it's okay. The occasional spot. I like to will think develop. that it has butt acne. Butt acne. So buttony. Fair enough. Buckney? But, but. I don't know where you're going with this. Well, like back knee is back okay. acne, right? And then they have mask knee, which okay. is like the acne that you get because you're wearing a mask. Right. So I was trying to think what butt acne would be called. Butt acne. Well, I have a I have a phrase, but it's a slightly blue. Oh, then no, we want to stay fresh and clean. So fresh and so clean. So fresh and so clean. Yes. So pumpkin patching was a great time. Yes. And pumpkin patching also revealed a new patron. Yes. So first of all, I'd like to send a shout out, a personal shout out to the captain, uh, who is a very good patron of the show. And I want to send out a shout out to all of you who want to be patrons, but actually don't want to give us any money. We know that your intentions are true, you know, and you do not have to give us any money. And just to be clear. Yes. Our patrons are very kind to us, but the amount of money that we're discussing is very low. Yes. Again, as noted, the captain has provided me with um, some meals when we were traveling together in various places and a $2 (laughs) patron support of the last episode. Yes, but I now have a patron. Yes. Who I'm calling Apple Pie. Apple Pie. Yes. Um, And Apple Pie provided a dollar. One dollar, folks. It paid for a water. Yes. But my patron. Is that the water you threw up? No. No. I like to think it was water later. (laughs) Water that was later enjoyed. Well, because the the, um, apple, Apple Pie gave me... The dollar after. Oh, gotcha. That's right. That's um, right. And then yesterday, apple pie, um, in a fit of competitive spirit, um, provided $4, which bought my Mountain Dew for today to give me the sugar and the caffeine to go. I tell you, there's so many rewards from podcasting. I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, I've made five whole dollars. I do not know how we're going to dodge the IRS. I know. With the wealth that we are reaping. They're gifts. They're gifts. Yes. Yes. We are allowed one-time gifts up to a certain amount. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we are very thankful for our patrons, but also our listeners generally. Yes. We do appreciate those of you who take the time to spend anywhere from 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes with us on a bi-weekly basis to hear the wonderful stories of the spooky paranormal. And do we have some interesting stuff today? Yes. We would like to talk about... Spooky things related to a spooky couple who did spooky investigations in the spooky 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yes. So, as listeners know, they listened last week, I do 31 days of horror films. Yes. Right, throughout the month of October. Um, I did miss one yesterday, so I'm going to have to watch two today to catch up. Yesterday, I was doing some things with friends and grading, so I missed my movie, but I'll catch up. But... 
There is a couple who show up pretty frequently in a lot of scary films, both documentaries and fictional films. And who are these people? They are Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, yes. Yes, there are documentaries specifically about them. There are documentaries about their famous cases. And there's even a very um, well-made-for-two-of-them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. A well-made-for-two-of-them, but also a larger cinematic universe now. Yes, a growing franchise. Called The Conjuring. Yes. So, so we have the three Conjuring films. We have the Annabelle films. The Curse of La Llorona is somehow related. Don't ask me how. Um, we have The Nun. Yes. So they are well-known. And in fact, when I first started really getting kind of into um, the paranormal, and of course, this was back in the day when we had this wonderful bookstore chain called Hastings. Ooh. And you could go buy books for like a little amount of money at Hastings in their markdown shelves. I found a book called ESP Hauntings and Poltergeist, which talked extensively about the Warrens mm-hmm. and their sort of prominence in the paranormal supernatural community. Because the Warrens are very well known. Yes. Some very famous cases that even I think if you're not super interested in the paranormal, um, I don't know why you'd be listening to this podcast if you're not interested, but who knows? Yes. Maybe you like the sound of our voices. Our witty banter. Yes. (laughs) Um, So some of their most well-known cases, probably their best known is the Amityville case. Yes. Pigs in the window. Dead flies. Priests running. Amok. Well, no, they. the priest comes to bless the house because they're Catholic, and the he's attacked has- by the flies in the window, and so he flees and gets real sick. Yeah. Um, chopping wood. Yes. <laughs> so Dr. Evan has a pretty good paranormal crush on some of the actors who have played roles in the Amityville movies that have come out. Well, uh, James Brolin. James Brolin. I find him dreamy. Yes. Um, 70s James Brolin is chef's kiss. (laughs) This is the second podcast in a row that we've talked about him. (laughs) Um, But yes, so the well-known Amityville horror case where basically a family moved into a house that was very um, low-cost. Why was it low-cost? Because a young man... Uh, Ronnie DeFeo had murdered his entire family. Yeah. Um, This was before, by the way, I think, before you had to, as Dr. Hannah's um, real estate contract suggested, had to tell everyone. Well, no, they knew. Well, yeah, the murders were very public. Right. Um, I don't know if you you had to at that time disclose, even if it wasn't famous, but... Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, if you haven't bought or sold a house... You have to do property disclosures, and one of the things that you've always had to disclose was whether or not there had been a, at least as I understand, is that whether or not there had been a murder or a suicide. Yeah, not deaths house. generally. Right. But we say like a traumatic death. Right. Um, to make sure that the house wasn't psychologically impaired. As Dr. Because Dr. Hannah was filling out because she is both selling and buying a home, um, showed it to us. If you're interested in like what it looks like, there is a picture on our Facebook. Right. Um, but basically, that I think they're there for just under a month, the family. Yeah. And they flee in the middle of the night. Yes. Um, and the Warrens came to investigate. Right. Claiming that, um, I think it was haunted by demons? Demonic. Forces. Yes. Demonic infestation. Yeah. Because the, ar- the argument was is that Ronnie DeFeo, the person who had murdered his family, had become possessed. Right. And it was demons that had... Encouraged him to kill um, his mother, his father, and his three siblings. Three? I can't remember how many siblings. I think it was three. I think it was a sister and two brothers. But younger folks. Younger. He was not very old when he did this. He was in his 20s, early 20s. Early 20s, yeah. Um, And in the film, if you watch it, and in the book, The Amityville Horror, very famous book, one of the earliest sort of horror books I read, um, they talk about how the dad, the James Brolin character... Um, was also becoming kind of abusive and right. angry. Yes. And they thought it was because of yes. the house. And that does seem to be a pattern, sort of sidebar. We'll get back to the Warrens here in a second. But it does seem to be a pattern because when we talked about the Sally house in season one, mm-hmm. um, the guy who lived there with his wife, those were the sorts of feelings that he was starting to develop, violent feelings towards his wife, that he wanted to kill her, those sorts of things. Right. And so that's the argument that it was some demonic manifestation. Yeah. So what else have they done? Um, they did the Perrin family haunting in Rhode Island. Yes, with um, who was the 
Bathsheba. Oh, yeah, the, the alleged witch. The alleged witch who lived in the house. This was Well, in this one, it was a neighbor. Yes. If I remember correctly. The real case. It was right. allegedly a neighbor who had cursed the family in the house or something. Um, I don't remember 100%. I just did cursing gestures. I don't know why. But yeah, I just ignored them. <laughs> I was cursing. I was also scratching my elbow, so I thought he was like, stop, <laughs> stop. it. <laughs> um, but the, this is an interesting. So the very first Conjuring film is based on the Perrin family haunting. Um, it's a beautiful farmhouse on beautiful land. In Rhode Island, it's for sale. It's for sale, yeah. So, and if you are like us and like the BuzzFeed boys, the, the Ghoul Brothers. Yes, shout out to them if they're listening, thanks. <laughs> Sincerely doubt they are, <laughs> but hey. Um, BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural, their very first case from this season, their last season, was the Perrin family yes. farm. Yes. And I think the farm is for sale for, I think it was like $1.2 million It was surprisingly or, low for this large, beautiful farmhouse. Well, the house isn't that big, though, if I remember I, right. Oh, I feel like it was long. Maybe it was because they had a barn. Right. Um, but a lot of property in Rhode Island. property is beautiful. Wooded yep. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, allegedly, there was a curse or a haunting of some kind from a alleged witch named Bathsheba. I did some reading on it, and it's actually really sad. So... The reason they thought Bathsheba was a witch when she was alive is because an infant died in her care. And they thought that it died because she put a pin at the base of its skull and killed it. But there is zero evidence. Of course. um, Of that. And this was in the 19th century, like mid-19th century. So I don't even know how they'd be able to figure that out. Well, I mean, there was she was a woman, right? Wasn't that sufficient? <laughs> but it's interesting because by that point, there's not a lot of claims of um, you know, witchcraft. Right. But anyway, she basically lived out for the rest of her life as a pariah. She did not commit suicide, as the film suggests. Right. But good, good film, if you're interested in right. The Conjuring. Creepy. So they did that. Amityville. What else? Anything else? Um, the Infield Haunting, kind of. Okay, so that was the poltergeist haunting. In England. Yes. Um, That's Conjuring 2. Right. Um, They were not super involved in that case in real life. Um, They kind of showed up for a brief time. Um, But that one is basically a poltergeist alleged haunting. Right. Right, in the family home um, of a impoverished family in England, kind of in their version of public housing. Right. Um, And then also... The Arnie Cheyenne Johnson Devil Made Me Do It case. Yes. Which is covered in The Conjuring 3, which is just FYI, folks. Not as good. The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2. But the reason why that case is so interesting is it was the first time in the American legal system where someone had tried to use the defense of demonic possession to um, uh, evade or um, to evade a charge or to disprove an allegation. So basically... This person, Arnie Johnson, was present at the exorcism of his girlfriend's brother. Yeah, I believe so. um, Little brother, something like that. And um, he at one point said, you know, come to me, demon, let him go or something like along those lines. And purportedly the demon jumped and then he killed someone else later on. And he said he had no free will, no self-control. He didn't even really remember it. Right. Um, Although it is interesting because in the literature surrounding demonic possession, right, um, it's not how we usually imagine it, where the demon takes full control over the person, right? You still have free will, um, but your free will is extraordinarily compromised mm-hmm. in these situations. So you'll often see in exorcisms, right, they're talking um, to the demon, but they're also talking to the person, you know, to fight as well. Because they, you know, the literature suggests that in the rituals, they recognize that there's still a spirit or a child of God in there that can fight back against demonic possession. So, And um, the defense did not work? No, not at all. Um, basically, the court ruled that you can't prove demonic possession in a way that's going to satisfy a court. Right. Um, so they threw out that as a defense. Um, and I believe they went with a self-defense Yes, uh, self-defense. self-defense. Um, he was convicted of first-degree first manslaughter. Was given a 20-year sentence and served five, got out, got married, and nothing has ever happened since, to my knowledge. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, it was the gentleman that he murdered. He lived in, okay, Arnie and his girlfriend yes. lived in an apartment owned, I believe, by this guy. 
And there's some hints that this guy was a real creep. Again, I don't really know for sure. And that there was some kind of um, altercation between the two of them. Yeah. And the other man ended up dying. And there we go. Speaking, though, of, and listeners, pardon the tra- the um, digression, but speaking of odd defenses, right, for crimes, um, the devil made, made me do it is actually a more reasonable defense in my mind than the defense that was offered up after the assassination of Harvey Milk, which was the Twinkie defense, that the person who assassinated Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay um, uh, I forget, uh, board member from the San Francisco um, Board of Supervisors, um, Dan Brown, his defense was that he was suffering from severe depression that was brought upon by a diet of junk food. Oh. Right. The Twinkie defense. You can look it up. Terrible defense. Terrible defense. Well, there have been many, right? But so. that's a terrible defense. Twinkies don't make Twinkies do nothing but make you happy. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. They don't make me happy. Oh, why not? Because they don't taste very good. Oh, they're spongy yellow goodness. They're not very... They don't have much of a flavor. That's what's great about them. You can They can take on any flavor. You can put them... Next to a piece of ham, and it's so. Why would I want that? Because <laughs> then you have ham Twinkie. I don't want a ham Twinkie. There are plenty of other snack cakes that taste better <laughs> than a Twinkie. Name one. Uh, yeah, zebra see? cake. Ah, mm, zebra cakes. Zebra cakes. Made out of real zebras? No. This is making me think of a friend from my youth who every day at lunch would have a zebra cake. It's basically those white cakes with. Um, but not a Twinkie. White flavorful cakes with cream. <laughs> and then they were covered in various designs. So it's like the Christmas trees or the... And these were just like in an octagon with little black stripes and they were called zebra cakes. Yes. We, know, we, were, not, we were not big Twinkie fans growing up. We had zingers. Mostly that was our thing. We liked Hostess cupcakes in my yeah. household. But we digress because Ed and Lorraine Warren probably weren't involved with the Twinkie defense. Yeah. But like the guy who shot John Lennon, um, whose name is escaping me. Can't remember. Something Chapman basically said that the catcher in the rye made him do it. Yes. Right? Which, I mean, all right. Um, <laughs> John Hinckley Jr. was trying to impress Jodie Foster when he tried to assassinate. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's been lots of. Yeah, I mean. Troublesome. Yes. I mean, John Hinckley Jr.'s defense was related to his schizophrenia. Well, no, I was saying that part is fine, right. but the like. Which oh. is not quite the same as the Twinkie defense. From Dan Brown. I'm just suggesting that there are unique defenses that pop up fairly often. Right. But the devil made him do it did not fly. Mm-mm. So my question for you, Dr. Evan, is the Warrens have been involved in a whole bunch of cases. We're actually going to talk about one of them in some detail here in a bit. But how does one get involved in this? How did the Warrens start? Well, it's a little unclear exactly how it got started um, from what I could read. I'm, they've written a ton of books, so I figure if we re- read one of them, we get a little bit more um, but what we do know is that um, Ed and Lorraine were married in 1945. Right. And from what I understand, it was sort of a love at first sight sort of story. Yeah. I don't know if that's from the film or if that's... I saw a documentary. Okay. Or listened to one about them. And that seemed to be something that was suggested. Got it. Well, during World War II, Ed was in the Navy. In the Navy. That's it. That's all I got. All right. And upon returning home, I he... feel underappreciated. <laughs> that was a moment of musical song. I mean, what do, what are we supposed to do? Make a joyous sound. That was joyous. All right. So he studied at Yale's Subsidiary Art School, <laughs> the Perry Art School, and he and um, Lorraine, who grew up in New England, basically traveled throughout New England trying to sell his paintings. And in the interim, they were going to a lot of haunted places just to kind of. Visit. I wonder if this is what Hunter Biden does. I don't. You don't know that he's a Hunter Biden, the president. Yeah, I know who he is. Son, he has turned to art, and he's selling his art for like I think one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars starting price. There's all sorts of hubbub about it, or there was a few weeks, few months ago. Oh, I I don't know. I mean, whatever helps you continue recovery. Sure. Um, and a lot of Ed's artwork was kind of based on his experiences at the haunted locations. And allegedly, that's why they started getting involved. Um, but Lorraine had claimed, since she was a young child, that she was a clairvoyant mm-hmm. and perhaps a medium psychic. Okay, so a clairvoyant is... is From what I understand, clairvoyants can see the future. Okay. 
And then psychic mediums, or medium psychics, however you want to phrase it, can contact spirits. Right. They serve as intermediaries Mm -hmm. between the living and the dead. Yep. And so in 1952, Ed and Lorraine established the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is allegedly the oldest paranormal research organization in the United States. And it is still functioning. They have an active website. It's being run by their steps, or their Uh, son-in-law. Yeah. So um, Ed and Lorraine only had one daughter, Judy. And Judy made, married a man named Tony Sparrow. And so Tony is now the head of the organization and runs their museum that's currently shut down. I think they're trying to find a new place to right. host the museum. Sure. Um, but he's in charge now. Um, own, he owns the house along with his wife that they lived in, which is where their museum is. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it's worth noting, I guess, that you know, both Ed and Lorraine and Warren have passed away. Ed passed away in the early 2000s. Do you remember when? She died in the last two or three years. Yes, because she actually was in the first Conjuring movie. She just a, a cameo. cameo. Yeah, yes. when they're giving a lecture, the, yeah. the characters are giving a lecture and she's sitting in the audience. Right. So, um, so the Warrens have done... I think, I think their website says over 100 cases. Yes. And they are loosely affiliated with the church, but not really? I, it's a, From what I can gather, it's a little unclear what their connection to the Catholic Church is. They themselves considered themselves to be devout Catholics. Right. Ed, however, taught himself about demonology as a field. Right. Um, and Lorraine just claimed to be psychic. Right. Um, so there's a little bit of evidence that the church recognized him as a lay demonologist, and other things I've seen say, well, they don't really, the Catholic Church doesn't really do much or didn't do a ton with them. Right. I mean, one of the things that, and we want to make this clear, A, whenever we talk about demonology, there's always the risk that, um, you know, there are people who have deep-seated beliefs mm-hmm. that are framed by their religious convictions, and we never want to trample or be disrespectful of those. Um, but there is a distinction between, um, demonology and what demonologists purportedly do versus um, paranormal researchers and and what they are trying to do. Because, and I think they consider themselves to be both. Right. Because generally speaking, if you're dealing in demonology, you're dealing with what is classified as a supernatural. Things are out and above beyond any rational explanation. Mm-hmm. Where if we're talking about paranormal, we're just talking about stuff that is outside the normal that we may yet be able to explain. Yes, because according to the Warrens... Their first instinct was always to try to find rational reasons for why things were happening. Yes. I don't know. Again, there are a lot of critiques of the Warrens that suggest maybe or maybe not that's the case. Um, But that they would try and figure out, okay, is someone suffering from mental illness? Um, You know, are they feeling drafts because there's an actual draft in the house? (laughs) Right. Right. Are there rational, easily found and explained reasons why they think they're experiencing the phenomenon? Right. So, um, should we talk about one of their cases, or do we have more to say? Um, no, I think we can talk about one of the cases. I think so, be- again, the Warrens have, to their credit, over, um, at least according to the website, so we looked at over 100 cases that they've investigated. The New England Society for Psychic Research webpage lists, I think it's like eight or nine of their most famous ones. And one of their cases that's actually pretty well-known, but it's not actually as well-known as we think it is, although... I guess it has been intimated that this is going to be the next movie in the franchise that comes out, interestingly enough, is the case of the South End Werewolf. Which is one that I had not heard about until yesterday. Yes. And, excuse me, um, because it is spooky season and because it is October and we talk a lot about ghosts and demons, um, it is worthwhile to maybe talk about werewolves because werewolves are part of the um, uh, lexicon of Halloween, right? We Mm -hmm. talk a lot about werewolves. So I want to tell you a little bit about what happened, and then um, you can kind of tell me what you think is going on based upon what I'm going to tell you. So I didn't know much about this, um, but apparently this is a, a a long, not a long story, but the history of the South End werewolf is a long story, right? Okay. Um, So... It's really about a guy named William Bill Ramsey. That's the person we're talking about. Bill being his nickname. Not his Bill name. was his nickname. Okay. <laughs> William, air quotes, Bill Okay, I just want Ramsey. to make sure the way you phrased it, it was like William Bill. 
And he was born in 1943, so quite a while ago, in the town of Southend in Essex, Essex, uh, Essex, England. And he had a very normal childhood. Okay, He would play outside. There were woods around. He would kind of just have a good time as a kid. But when he turned nine, okay, or when he was nine years old, so it didn't happen on his birthday, but when he was <laughs> nine years old, something began to happen. So the story is that he was out in the garden behind their house, playing as normal when he began to feel very strange. And he suddenly felt as if an icy wind had swept up over his body, even though it was a warm and pleasant afternoon. Um, He started to perspire from the stress of that and the perspiration he uh, 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 crystallized on his skin. It was so cold. So he described the sensation as if you had walked into a meat locker Mm. um, after you'd been outside on a hot day. He said that's what it was like. And then he also said he was overtaken by this overpowering stench that filled him with extreme nausea, nausea, and he was barely able to stop vomiting um, from the smell. And when I heard that, I thought of you. Well, because (laughs) I was feeling cold and clammy. (laughs) So, connections abound. (laughs) I'm a werewolf. That's right. But... What's even more unusual, aside from these physical symptoms, was um, accompanying psychological manifestations in his mind. So when the grip of whatever seemed to have possessed him had passed, he was filled with this desire to either run away towards the ocean on all fours like an animal. That's what he said he felt like doing. Um, And then he had vivid and repeated images of wolves, and he felt that at that moment something in him changed. Now... All you listeners who are good parents, which are all of you, are probably saying, well, where were his parents, right? Well, his parents were there, okay? And they saw that something was amiss, and his mother tried to snap him out of this weird trance, but that made image or made matters worse. And so what happened is the images of the wolves, according to Ramsey, vanished from his mind. They were replaced with feelings of extreme and violent rage and hatred. And what he did, he tore the fence post out of the ground and he been, began swinging around like a club. Okay, the parents tried to take it away, but they couldn't get it out of his grasp. And then he also began to growl and snarl, and he took part of the metal fencing and put it in his mouth and began to chew and gnaw on it like an animal. So his parents freaked out. They ran inside, and they left him out there. I mean, fair. Yeah, I mean, well, what are you going to do, right? It's 1952, you know, if he's nine years old. What are you going to do? So... He finally calmed down. His parents let him inside the house. They tended to the bleeding wounds in his lips and his mouth. And um, they didn't know what had happened. But what did they say? None of them should ever discuss it again. (laughs) So better living through denial. That's a good way to deal with things. I'm making a face, everyone. Yes. So 15 years pass. Okay. In the SpongeBob world, 15 years later. Right? Uh Uh-huh. And... The fit that had gripped him in the backyard was just a memory, right? It never happened again for 15 years. He grew up. He married his wife. He had three beautiful children. And according to his family and friends, he was a wonderful person. He was a carpenter, right? He led an entirely normal and conventional life. But after he married his wife, he started to be plagued by nightmares. And he would see himself chasing after him, his wife. And the dreams would always end with her turning back to look at him, her face twisted into this expression of horror, and he would awaken from the dream in a cold sweat filled with deep feelings of dread. And on some nights, he would awake from the dream, and he was certain he could hear the panting of a wild animal coming from somewhere inside the room. Oh, God. And he soon realized that the noises were coming from his own throat. So in 1967, two years after his wedding, these dreams suddenly stopped. Okay, And then nothing happened for another 15 years. And so 15 years later, um, in 1983, Ramsey um, goes to a pub for a night of fun with some of his friends. And Are they in England? They are in England. Okay. Um, so I actually need to get our recording going here, so keep talking, Dr. Evan. Oh, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> Dr. T- or, uh, Dr. Ed is having some technical difficulties. No, I just, I guess I understand the South End is being part of London. I just didn't think about the South End. 
being part of London. Um, and now I'm watching him panic type, <laughs> trying to get logged back in to the computer. There we go. Oh, he's good. Like magic. And this time it didn't stop recording. No. Which it has in the past. We're very lucky. So anyway, um, he went to a pub and uh, with some of his friends, and he had a few drinks, and then suddenly that familiar, eerie feeling came back over him. Um, He was sitting on the bar stool, and the same chill overtook him that he had on the day when he was nine years old. Um, And what he claims is he ran to the bathroom of the pub, and much to his dismay, the face that stared back at him from the mirror was that of a wolf. Okay. A full wolf or a werewolfy looking? A full wolf. Okay. Now, he went back to his friends and said, we all need to go. <laughs> I'm a leave. wolf. Let's go. His friends agreed. They piled into the car. And then on the drive, he began to growl deep in his throat. And his friends watched in terror and confusion as Ramsey twisted his hands into the shape of claws. Oh, God. And with no warning, he leapt at his fellow passengers and attempted to claw and bite them. The driver pulled over, much like I did when (laughs) Dr. Evan was getting sick, and they pulled Bill from the car, but he had supernatural strength. He was in a frenzy, and they couldn't restrain him. So after a few minutes, the rage ebbed, and they removed him from the car, and he later said he couldn't remember anything that happened. Did they leave him, or did they? I think they took him home, from what I can tell. I didn't know if they were like, you're trying to bite us. Hang out here. So, again, time passes, so he forgot about the incidents or tried to forget about it until about 18 months later, where he began to experience chest pains, and he broke out into a cold sweat. Where would you go if that was happening? you go to the emergency room, right? Yeah, but I thought you were going to wait for me to say it. You, like, did an indication, like, (laughs) say it, Dr. Evan. Yes. If you have chest pains, go to the hospital. Right. And why did he go to the hospital? Because he thought he was having a heart attack. That's right. And so he was laying on a gurney undergoing an examination, and then he recognized that the symptoms that he was experiencing um, were the same icy chill that had plagued him previously. And so a poor nurse, okay, frontline workers, you know, God bless, right? Poor nurse was examining his blood pressure, and he turned to her suddenly, and he basically sunk his teeth into her arm. Oh, no. He bit her, and he began running through the hospital with a hunchback. Hands curled in the claws and his teeth bared as he growled and snarled. Oh, gosh. Several people tried to restrain them but were easily knocked down by his bizarre strength. And a police officer even managed to put handcuffs on him, but he still continued on his rampage. So, again, he's cuffed and he's still rampaging through the hospital. Now, there was the help of several staff members and they finally sedated him. And when he woke from his sedation, he was back to normal, checked himself out of the hospital against his doctor's advice, And he couldn't remember anything about the incident. Okay. Now, two months later, okay, again, it's kind of a long story. It's a long tale, yeah. It's a long tale, but it's really interesting. Oh, it's interesting. Two months later, he returns to the same hospital after experiencing the same icy chill that prefaced his earlier attacks. Now, by now, the story of the, quote, South End werewolf had made its way around the hospital, and the nurse on staff was terrified of Ramsey. Okay. Understandably. Now... Her fears were justified because he checks himself in and he soon leapt at her and an orderly. But there were police officers nearby. They were able to quickly restrain him. But he injured an officer so badly that that officer remained in the hospital for four days. Mm. Um, He was taken to jail where he was released um, after he returned to normal and he couldn't recall the details of the events. Now, here's where this really gets kind of um, devilly. Okay. So... In 1987, so again, more time passes. In 1987, the South End Werewolf, as Ramsey is now known, returns to the police station. Because Ramsey, according to this particular story, had encountered a young prostitute on the street. And he decided that he was going to do a citizen's arrest. So, (laughs) I don't know. So He's just going to arrest a sex worker? That's right. Mind your business. 1987. Mind your business. So... He takes her to a police station. Now, while they were dry, driving, this young sex worker watches as he transforms and begins snarling and growling at her. She jumps from the car. She runs for the police station. And he follows her in rage, right? And so a large, burly police officer um, comes out, touches him on the arm to calm him down. Ramsey snaps. He tackles the man. And he starts to choke him, right? And 
as he was choking this police officer, and there's actually testimony from this police officer, you can see it online on the YouTubes, he, Ramsey, yelled, the devil is in me. I am going to kill you. I am strong when the devil is in me. And it took six officers to sedate him, and he ended it in the hospital for 10 days, and in spite of a battery of tests, they were unable to determine the cause of his bizarre condition. So this hits the tabloid news in Britain, okay? It's Which all over. infamously yes. horrible yes. tabloids. So, enter noted demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. Okay, so here's where they come so in. So do we know who called them? They heard about it um, through these... Um, a lot of it was through these um, tabloids, and then I don't know who called them specifically. Oh, and just yeah. as a quick note. Because they were in the UK were they at there the time. For, no, Enfield was earlier than that. Anyway, yeah. um, just as an FYI, they don't take money from the people that they allegedly try to help. Yes. So, the, like, if they went here to try and help this man, they wouldn't take money from this right, family. Right. Yeah, there's, no, there's no exchange of currencies for their help as demonologists. So, they had heard about the South End Werewolf, okay? And Ed was very, very skeptical, okay? There's an interview with them about this particular case, and Ed was very skeptical about this. But Lorraine believed very much so, okay, that he was likely possessed by some form of an animal demon spirit, okay? Animal demon spirit. An animal demon spirit. All right. And so they offered to help. And so they had multiple conversations. And apparently the more Ed talked with this guy and the more they talked with his family, he became increasingly convinced that this was something supernatural that was happening. And so they got Ramsey to agree to travel to Connecticut back with them to, with, uh, to be treated by a specialist friend of theirs. And their specialist friend was Bishop Robert McKenna. And... During this period, right, while he's traveling to Connecticut, while they're waiting for Bishop McKenna to perform what's going to be an exorcism on him, uh, Ramsey's transformations increased in frequency, duration, and intensity. Um, so he and his wife had made that trip to the United States, and the night before the exorcism, the Ramsey basically tried to strangle his wife while she was asleep. Okay, so And, of course, he didn't remember it. So they start the exorcism. Okay. And according to Ramsey, according to McKenna, the first 30 minutes were pretty uneventful. Um, and then, after about 30 minutes, Ramsey suddenly takes on the characteristics of their werewolf. Okay? His hands curls into talons, and he begins to snarl and rage and growl at the bishop. And the bishop commands the demon to leave, and for a very brief moment, okay, Ramsey displayed a rage that was even more powerful than he had shown previously. Then it stopped. So, in 1992, okay, Ramsey made his last public appearance, stating that there have been no more incidents since the exorcism. There have been no incidents recorded that match the description of the attacks in the years since. So many people believe that the South End werewolf was actually exorcised and banished by the priest Robert McKenna. Um, however, okay, this is the other thing that people say, um, that there had been decade-long lulls in activity, um, so it might just have been a matter of time. Now, we can assume now if Ramsey was born in 43, he is, what, 78? So he may not even be alive anymore, so we don't really know. Um, but I'm, I'm Googling. She's Googling even as we speak. So, once again, the Warrens come in and save the day where it seems like medical science didn't work. So what are your thoughts of that particular Warren story? Well, at the moment, I'm trying to find his age, or if he's still with us. Right. Um, but, of course, my immediate thought is, first of all, I'm looking at some pictures, and um, he doesn't look like a werewolf. No. He looks like a man who is... Clawing, making claw hands. <laughs> That's what she just said, turned her hands into claws. Um, and snarling. And snarling. And he, um, he's a big guy in the pictures. Yes. He's a pretty big guy. Um, in terms of, like, not overweight, but, like, right. tall, kind of burly. Right. Um, and also has teeth that I think could look more frightening. In that, like, nothing's wrong with his teeth, just 
because he is a bigger guy, etc. Right. Um, but my first thought is um, epilepsy. That was my very first thought when you were describing it, because mm-hmm. folks who have epilepsy can experience those physical symptoms of, like, coldness, mm-hmm. the shivers, and then seeing things that aren't there. Right. And um, adrenaline can cause what looks to be superhuman strength. Super strength. And also, epilepsy can strike at odd times, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to happen all the time. Okay. Um, and it can cause you to, just depending on how it functions, or it doesn't have to be epilepsy, but some kind of frontal lobe hmm. seizure disorder. Um, that was my first thought. And and if he was not in the midst of a seizure when he's at the hospital, it's hard to tell. Okay. Because it doesn't, like, damage the brain exactly. Right. Um, and I don't know how good EEGs would have been at the time to discover them in the well, first place. Yeah, we're talking 80s, right? So I don't Well, part know. of it, yeah. yeah. Um, but, of course, I mean, like, I'm intrigued because it doesn't, it does not hold mm-hmm. with any sort of, of the mythology. It's not happening in full moon. Right. He is not physically transforming. He looks different in terms of he's moving right. his body differently. Right. But to me, it sounds like there's some form of, again, because my naturally skeptic nature and the fact that I don't, I personally, this is a personal statement, don't really believe in demons. Seems like it's some form of mental illness. Because I'm thinking of other forms of mental illness that are kind of weird and rare. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden, but it's one where you think that you're dead. Mm -hmm. And they joke, or they don't joke. It's like, has like the nickname of like the zombie disease. It's Mm -hmm. a rare mental illness and people genuinely think they're dead. They'll stop eating. I did not know that. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Um, I listened to, there's a good podcast about medical mysteries, and that was one of them. Like, where does this come from? Right. But people will stop eating. I need that. Stop it. (laughs) Um, They'll stop eating and doing other things, and they'll die. But they think they're already dead. Right. So it's this interesting disease. So I could see something of a similar form where his mental illness is somehow... Um, coming out as him feeling this way. Well, one thing that does exist, and so this was something I came across in my readings about this, is something called clinical lycanthropy. Oh, okay. And so clinical lycanthropy is a rare psychiatric syndrome. This is coming from Wikipedia, the source of all good knowledge, (laughs) right? That involves a delusion that the affected person can transform into, has transformed into, or is an animal. Um... And so the name is, of course, associated with the mythical condition of lycanthropy, which is a supernatural affliction. The werewolf, um, you know, becoming a werewolf. Yeah, where people are physically shapeshift. So um, there's a study that basically listed some diagnostic criteria um, that could be recognized, including a patient reporting in a moment of lucidity or reminiscence that they sometimes feel as an animal or have felt like one, or a patient behaving in a manner that resembles animal behavior, for example, howling, growling, crawling and it is argued that this clinical lycanthropy is considered to be an idiosyncratic expression of a different type of psychotic episode um, caused by another condition like schizophrenia or bipolar or clinical depression something like that and it comes out this way right okay and so one of the things i read and we've talked about this before this notion of kind of belief in the power of belief where this person is having this actual um, uh, psychotic episode, um, but they have enough belief in the um, religious faith, right, that it is that that is sufficient for them to believe that this doesn't happen, and so it doesn't manifest anymore. Does that make sense? How I just explained that? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So it's this notion that. Um, you know, the Warrens claim that the exorcism is what ended this, as did um, uh, the guy as well. But really, the argument might be, well, no, it's because you believe that the exorcism worked. Oh, right. That, yes, that, that it worked, right? It actually has no power in and of itself. But the actual, there's not a re- religious, there is not God actually intervening and helping to remove the spirit or the demon, etc., from your body. But because you believe that that works, it's right. kind of like a um, placebo effect. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, one of the things that I do think is very interesting is if it is, from what I understand about demon uh, mythology or demon lore or the literature surrounding demon demonic possession. Within the Christian faith. Within the Christian faith, right? A very limited world is demons don't just possess you, right? That just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That you always have to open a door, right? So that's why people are like, don't use the Ouija board. Don't, you know, don't do summoning rituals, right? Don't create opportunities for demons to become part of your life. To start the infestation and then the obsession. I forget all the stages. Um, uh, There's like four stages. Yeah, I'm uh, Um, just... Yeah. It ends in possession, right? Right. It's like obsession, infestation, which is kind of like the haunted house stuff. Then... Something else, and then I think it's. Um, um, I'm trying to Google obsession, real and then possession. I'm googling quickly. Quickly, quickly, but the idea is, of course, infestation, oppression, oppression, obsession, possession. Okay, and the idea is that for a demon to enter into your life, to be entered into your body, you have to find. They has to have a way to come in. So if this nine year old kid is just, I'm just out playing in my backyard why would suddenly a demon even if it was an animal demon spirit if such a thing exists which it probably does at least in the legends and mythologies and stories of a variety of belief systems right um why would it suddenly just come in right and you know that's something that's not well explained well and also again this is i'm not a religious scholar right um but my understanding is that demons aren't animals they're in human spirits. Right. And again, I could be misunderstanding all sorts of things. But I thought lots of demons were the fallen angels and uh, things that were created, etc. But I didn't think they were animals. So it just uh, struck me odd that she would think it was a animal demon. Yeah, or demon animal spirit. Um, another thing that I do think if we're going to talk about the Warrens, and this kind of raises a much more, um, I think... A complicated issue, right? Because, well, as as Dr. Evans said, you know, the Warrens never took money directly from anyone that they helped, right? They were never asked. They were never paid by the families, right? They 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 didn't want that. But the Warrens' um, estate, reportedly around the time of their death, was roughly twelve million dollars. They were clearly well off because they had turned this into an incredibly lucrative, and I know it sounds a little disrespectful to say it this way, but kind of side business, right? Because they published multiple books. They went on lecture tours to universities, right? Um, the films that were made out of the stories, they got a share of right. profits. And even in the case of The South End Werewolf, um, they published a book about it, right? That was you know pretty popular in terms of sales. So mm-hmm. the question is, is... If we examine the legacy of the Warrens, right, how legit are they, right? Because that always seems to be the debate that I see, is that, you know, were these people who were um, uh, kind of, you know, for all intents and purposes, frauds who found cases, and of course they didn't, they weren't directly exploiting the people, right, because they weren't getting money to help them, but then they would take that and use it to build this whole other business, Around you know um, you know possession and demons and ghosts and all these various things, mm-hmm. um, and it I mean it is interesting you know they ran that museum for a very long time, which I don't think they made actually a, a ton of money off of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the entrance rates were. So the museum that we're talking about is they've taken items from cases, right? And the most famous is the Annabelle doll, which is it a Raggedy Ann doll, not like the. Annabelle doll from the movie. Yeah, not porcelains. Right, which I have a magnet of in my office. (laughs) Um, But she's a Raggedy Ann doll. And there were two problems why in the film she's not Raggedy Ann. One, they couldn't get permission. Right, trademarks. Yeah, they didn't want (laughs) Raggedy Ann to be the evil um, doll. Yeah. And B, they wanted it to look creepier. Right, right. But they kept, I mean, they kept a lot of these artifacts... Too. Yeah, because, um, again, I'm getting some of this from um, the Ghoul Brothers because oh, yes. they went and visited Annabelle. Right. So they have, like, a totem used in a satanic ritual, um, just various things they've collected over the years. Right. And didn't at the end of one of the Conjuring films they actually kept something? Was it the music box? They keep something in all of them. Oh, really? So in the first one they keep the um, music box. 
And the second one, they keep the crooked man. Um, one of the kids has a toy where it's like, I can't remember what they're called. It's the thing that spins and there's little slats. Right. And you can see the the picture move. Right. It's like a shadow shadow lamp yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I don't really know what they're called, but they keep that. It has this character called the Crooked Man. Um, they keep that. And I don't remember the third one. They keep something. Right. Yeah, I, see, I don't I, remember. I don't remember either. Because the third one was not very yeah. good. So, I mean, based upon what you've read, do you, I mean, how legit do you think they are? Or how legit do you think they were? I... I know you're skeptical. I am. But see, for me, they're not frauds if they really think these things are happening. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe I don't think they're happening. But if they truly think that they're happening and are, have a real belief in what they're doing, to me, that's less of a fraud mm-hmm. element. But um, I, I don't know because the Lutz family, for example, from the Annieville Horror came out and said, we lied about all of this. Like, we lied about it. Wait, did the family say it or did the, the, the lawyer said it? I thought the family ended up saying I it. I thought the lawyer said it. Um, hold on. That the that basically the lawyer said that this was something that they the family had cooked up over a couple bottles of wine, a couple bottles of wine as a way to make money because the family was in over their heads with this house, that they bought a house that effectively they couldn't afford. Well, I, I'm double-checking. Um... But basically, the claims are that they lied. Mm. Um, I'm doing a quick check. Yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, this is how it works. This is this is live. This is, you know, research in action. History <laughs> at work. So it depends. So their son. Yes, who made a, a documentary, right? Yeah, says that some of it's real. The parents, it sounds like, have had. In various ways, suggested it was not real. Okay. Um, but the lawyer is the one who came out and said, no, it's a lie. Um, and there was also, like, a lot of discussion about, like, sharing profits with Ronnie DeFeo. Mm-hmm. Because he's the one who killed the family. Right. Because the book references that act as the impetus right. for, like, what happened to this house. And we should we should make it clear, too, that the book wasn't actually written by... The book, The Amityville Horror, wasn't written by the Warrens. Is written by Jay, Jay Anton. Anson? Yeah, Anson, I think. Okay. Um, Who was a media investigator? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but the Warrens claimed, I mean, until their last breath, that Amityville was real. Right. Um, you know, the Perrin family said what they experienced was very real. Um, the Enfield haunting, again, they weren't really involved, um, but they all continue to claim it was real. But lots of people had suggested that the Warrens weren't always on the up and up with, especially the books. Right. The book deals. Um, can't remember if it's the, which family it is. Maybe the Smurl family? Maybe. One of the families that they wrote a book, they were supposed to share the profits, and they didn't. Right. Um, and then some claimed, like, that when they arrived, they kind of brought the media with them mm-hmm. and caused a lot of trouble for the families. Right. So, like, I know, like, the Let's son has had significant issues throughout his life. Yes. Um, either from mental illness, um, addiction issues, I don't know, but has had significant issues. He kind of talked about, like, how the Annieville stuff ruined his life. Right. Not even the haunting itself, but the after effects. Right. And the discussion about, is it true? Is it a lie? You yeah. know, all of that stuff. Well, it's safe to say, I suppose, that the Warren's legacy will live on now, again, I don't know if their daughter, Judy, has ever spoken much about this. Obviously, I think she spoke fairly recently because it kind of came out fairly recently that there's some sketchy personal stuff going on with the family. That Ed allegedly had a girlfriend throughout much of his marriage, but it was a girlfriend that he started seeing when she was 15 or 16. Hmm. And that she lived in the house with them and Lorraine didn't care. Hmm. Um, and allegedly she, like, babysat their daughter and everything. Now, this woman has come out and talked about this, so I don't feel like I'm right. talking out of school or something. And Lorraine, Ed was dead by the time it came out. Lorraine never responded to it. But I thought Judy came out and was like, no, none of this happened. But there are a couple pictures that Dr. Ed and I saw that... Could be suggestive. Yes. Of, of inappropriate behavior. A very intimate relationship. Yes. But yes. again, I don't know. 
So, I mean, I just, again, I think that that, you know, it's always suspect when people start making a considerable amount of money off these sorts of things to me. Because, again, it, it speaks to motives and incentives and how we do things. Well, and obviously, like, <coughs> I am... Excuse me. Um, I can't think of the word all of a sudden. But, I mean, I watch the movie, so clearly I am part of... Yes, you're complicit. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, I watch the films. They're good. Yeah. Do I think they're... Real? No, but they're fun. Would you have an Annabelle doll in your house? Well, not because I didn't think, not because I would think it's haunted, but because she's really creepy. Right. Like, I don't want her looking at me. Right. Um, but I don't like porcelain dolls particularly. But like I have her magnet in my office, it doesn't bother me. Right. Until it moves to a different location. Eh. <laughs> it's not gonna. Um, but what if it did? Let's explore these hypothetical questions. I can't tell you what my reaction would be. I probably, honestly, I probably wouldn't notice (laughs) that it moved. Um, But yeah, I just, I don't know. You would be a very frustrating person to haunt. (laughs) (laughs) And be like, I put in all this effort. (laughs) You know how much energy it took me to move this magnet? But apparently all you need to do is scare me a scratch at my door. (laughs) Yes, that is true. The big spooky scratches. Um, But what what are you thinking? Um, You know, I don't know. I mean... Again, um, you know, I am not uh, religious. I am not a uh, subscriber to the Catholic faith. So because I'm they not, were devout Catholics. Yes. So I'm not in a position to um, dismiss their beliefs in, mm-hmm. in yep. faith-based rituals to address these sorts of issues. Um, again, I do think that, you know, the, the money becomes an interesting motivator you know, once you start to make money, you know, and but celebrity. Something to note, though, is they start this in 1952. The first case with any media is 1974. Right. So they had been doing it. I don't know how often, mm-hmm. but they had been doing it for 20 plus years before this is making them. Before they wrote any books or anything? Yeah, from what I could gather. Okay. Well, maybe they are less suspect than I think they are. I don't know. I mean, I do think that, you know, it's, this is one of these points of discussion, right, where we start to, if we're talking about demonic possession, right, there is probably a very thin line if demons are real and exist between what manifests as demonic possession and then what might be demons masquerading as mental illness, illness, right? Again, that's that question between science and the supernatural, right? We believe that we can use science to explain these things, but... You know, if we're going to spin alternate sort of explanations, right? Well, there is a, an argument that's clearly expressed in a lot of the literature that, sure, it's very easy for demons to um, infest people and then manifest as medical illnesses that we think we can cure with medication, mm-hmm. right? Which then just makes it easier for the demons to do whatever it is they are seeking to do. And there have been, I know that they've been on talk shows and stuff before where the Warrens actually like faced off with skeptics. Yeah. I never found their arguments very compelling because a lot of what they said is it comes down to faith. Yeah. And so for researchers, that's difficult. Like, I can't measure your faith. I can't study your faith. Right. If this is what you believe, that's fine. Right? No, I... We can't quantify it. Right. I can't judge that, and I can't measure that. Yeah. So if we want proof of the demonic, I don't know how we do that. Right. Yeah. It is a challenge for sure. So as we wrap up our spooky episode, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the Warrens. They are, you know, believe them, don't believe them. They are associated with lots of the main really popular horror genres that are kind of manifesting today. Again, Conjuring franchise is enormously successful. And some of them are good? Yeah. Not all of them. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I mean, The Conjuring is listed as one of the best ones. The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 are excellent. I didn't didn't really, wasn't all that spooked by The Conjuring. But it was also, we watched it, it was Halloween. I was tired. I probably slept through it. They're good films. I don't remember. Even if it's not spooky to you, they were good. Yes. The Conjuring 3 was... So as we wrap this up, though, um, there are a couple things that we want to remind listeners of. Mm-hmm. One of those is what's coming next. So on Halloween, Halloween, we're going to have a special episode. Yes. Probably very, a shorter episode. Yeah, very special. Um, basically, we're not going to bring you um, any real-life tales necessarily. We want to be spooky and yes. maybe scare the audience. Yes. Do our best. 
So what we are asking readers, readers, you're not reading a podcast, listeners. (laughs) What we're asking listeners is please, 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 if you have a spooky story, no matter how long or short. And it does not have to be a real experience, just like a scary story. A scary story that you have heard, an urban legend related to spooky, scary stuff that you want to share with us. Please send them to us via our email account at... Or, or oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, at phgparanormal at gmail.com. Or via our Facebook. Via send our us Facebook. A Facebook message. Yes. And we will happily share and discuss those. If we don't get reader stories, we are going to do what all good podcasters do and delve into the dark corners of the interwebs mm-hmm. and find spooky stories to share with you because Halloween is a time to be spooked. And it's one of my favorite days of the year. It is the best day of the year, truthfully. Yeah, I love Halloween. Yes. So we have all sorts of spooky things planned until such a time as we can spook again. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thanks to our patrons. Thanks to our listeners. And have a great spooky day. And watch some scary movies. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.